If you've invested in your business, chances are you've funded future growth potential through leverage and after filling out loan applications and undergoing credit checks. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Rask's Australian Business Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who dare to leave the world in a better place and get paid while we do it. This podcast will make you a better business owner, investor, founder, or entrepreneur. If you want to start a business or already have one, please subscribe to the series or share it with your friends, business partner, or colleagues. And don't forget to consider taking our free business course, which includes heaps of templates for creating business plans, HR documents, employee files, all of my software recommendations, and more. The course is completely free and available via the link in your podcast player. Okay, let's get into the episode. Andrew, thanks for taking some time to join me. Thanks, Owen. Today, we're going to talk about uh, you a bit. We're going to talk about the business you've built. Then we're going to talk about tax and law. So this is, as we're talking off air, the one thing that a lot of people, I guess, put off and they probably, well, they shouldn't. So whether you're starting a business, whether you run a business, whether you're looking to exit a business, we're going to cover those three key points. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? People cannot see you. I can see you. This is audio only. And you look really young. And so when I saw that you're managing director, like you, you've been with the business, which you co-founded for quite a while, I was kind of taken back, mate. But tell us a little bit about the business. Tell us about you and how you got into doing what you're doing. Yeah, th- thanks, Owen. Um, so, I guess we'll probably go back to to university, um, where I had a nickname of Doctor Tax. Um, <laughs> uh, a lot of the time, people don't know what they want to do in in their future um, when they're studying, and they yeah. you know they they do whatever, and they think, oh, you know, I'll work it out as 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 we go. But um, something gravitated. I just had a massive gravitation towards tax, and I, I knew I, I did a subject at uni. It was it was tax law, and I I fell in love with it. As hmm. nerdy as and as lame as that sounds, mm-hmm. um, so so I knew that's that's what I wanted to do, um, and um, like any sort of young um, person finishing school, you need to get some experience and mm. and, and, and do that. So um, uh, did the sort of lawyer lawyer journey, work at a larger firm. Get some experience, learn from from experienced um, practitioners, mm-hmm. and in around 2016, there was an opportunity for uh, a number of us to actually go out and um, start our own business, mm-hmm. and and that really excited me. It was not really something I had thought about until then, really. To be honest, I sort of um, uh, I. I 
I knew the legal skills and, and I knew how to do that, but I, I didn't know anything about running a business really yeah, right. or being a business owner. So um, since since 2016, it's 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 been a learning process for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, it's sort of I, I sort of see it as two steps forward and, and one step back, and you, you you know you learn as you go. You can't. There's a danger in trying to make sure everything is perfect before mm. uh, actioning anything. Um, doesn't mean just just wing it and go for it, but um, yeah. So so we started in 2016. Uh, there was four of us. Um, we're in a little shoebox office that's not much bigger than this recording studio, <laughs> and um, uh, we hit the ground running. Um, I went to Sydney for two years, relocated to Sydney and, and, and started a, an office in Sydney uh, and then um, came back to Melbourne. Uh, w- one of the founders transitioned out of the business and since then we've been able to grow to around about 30 um, personnel. Mm-hmm. And we initially started as just tax and uh, commercial law for private businesses. And, and since then we've we've sort of expanded to being law for private businesses and family groups. And what I mean by that is tax, commercial, property, employment, family law, uh, and litigation. So really m- most services that are a, a, a small to medium business or family that runs a small to medium business would uh, require. Mm. How do you, so getting to 30 staff, that's a big responsibility. How do you, and actually just on that, but it actually is refreshing to know because lawyers are often the smartest people in the room. It's refreshing to know that you were kind of making it up, you know, that two yeah. steps forward, one step back in part as you're going along, like a business skill set is very different. And I don't think, uh, at least as far as I know, there isn't a small business course that covers everything. So no, not even, and, and, and when we started, there wasn't even any sort of requirements for lawyers starting starting a practice to do those t- sort of courses. Right. Uh, I think around 2018, they actually introduced one, which is, it's still not uh, uh, particularly long or, or, or involved, but yeah, th- there's no requirements. You you don't have to have any skills yeah, right. as a business owner to go to start running a legal business. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, and that's refreshing because a lot of people listening to this would be like, well, that's kind of like for my industry, it's very much the same. Um, how do how do clients or customers, so how do small business owners or medium business owners find you? Yeah, well, we're not we're not on the street corner um, uh, wearing billboards and, and, and handing out signs. Um, a lot of the time, it's through intermediaries. So it may be through uh, an accountant. Um, it might be through the business uh, the business's accountant. It mm-hmm. might be through a financial planner, uh, a business broker, um, through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of sort of how we get our name out there. Part of it is is through doing those things and and sort of letting the the, the work speak for itself and, and generating that mm. that that flow on effect. Um, and part of it is um, writing articles, um, talking about new issues, presenting at um, various professional um, uh, conferences and, and things like that. Um, so it's a combination of those things um, mm. uh, that that drives sort of uh, a person to us. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of say even myself as a small business owner i'm i'm thinking like how, what is the first step that we take like why what would you so i guess another way to ask this question is what do you do every day and um like how would i fit into that yeah yeah so so a lot of what we do is is around i guess the times in a business owner journey that are a little bit 
uh, left of centre or left or right of centre, um, and, and a bit a bit unusual. It could be, look, I want to look, Andrew. I want to restructure my business, but I, I don't know how to. Or I've heard there's all these tax issues, and can you you know can you sort it out? How how do I get around it? Is it possible? Um, it might be a family business where uh, they want to transition the business from from one generation to the next. It may be uh, more of a litigious spin. It might be I've got this assessment and this audit that I've been dragged through from from a revenue office, or it might be um, I've got this employee that I want to um, um, terminate, and, and, and how can I do that? Um, it, a divorce, um, wanting to protect assets against risk. It's it, it's usually some sort of significant event that that is a little bit out of the day to day that sparks a need to go speak to a lawyer because. If we're honest, if we don't have to speak to lawyers, then we're probably better and happier as a result of it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So people, and this is probably something I had to learn when I was setting up my business. So say if someone was setting up their business, how does that work? Do they come to you and they say, this is what I'm thinking, and you give them, I, I'm just spitballing here, like a half an hour consult and you say, this is what we offer, this is what we do. Is that how it typically works? Yeah, it, it may typically work in that way. Um, a lot of the times people will speak to their accountant in, their, in the first instance on those type of conversations. They may say, look, I'm going to do this. What do you think? And mm. and, and accountants are great. They, they, they are dealing with business owners all the time. And, and a lot of time they will be able to answer those questions. Now, accountants can't give legal advice. Um, yeah. So that is, I guess, a limitation on that. Um, so sometimes um, clients will come to us. They, they, they'll say, "Look, I'm, oh, this is what I want to do. This is this is what's important. Um, this is the direction I want to take this." And um, you know, what? How should I do that? What, what are the recommendations? Now, m- more often than not, most of the conversations are around established businesses rather than yeah. um, uh, a new business. A new business, but. The issues around the established businesses are that it is so much harder to do anything once a business is established. For example, for a tax perspective. Um, so mm. if you can get it right from the start, then it could potentially save you those potential headaches in the future. Mm. And that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about uh, in this series and in our course. I just gave a broad overview of the different structures that are available to people. Um, you know, if it's sole traders, companies, partnerships, trust seem to be the most common from what I can tell. Yep. Um, can you just give us a kind of broad overview of those? Obviously, everything is case dependent and so on and so forth. But maybe if you have some examples as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. So so in Australia, um, we've got quite a lot of options around what, what actual structure to do anything with. And this might be in terms of um, business ownership as in active business assets, or it may be more of a passive ownership in terms of property and investments and things like that. But mm. the, 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 the entities are relevant to both of those things. Yeah. So we have sole trader, which is basically your personal name. Now, that's obviously the simplest way to do anything. Um, there's basically no establishment costs. There's no other entities. Uh, but from a risk perspective, it's also the highest because there is no, for the same reason, there's no other entity. There's no layer of um, protection. And, and, and basically everything is just is just you. There's not um, uh, any flexibility mm-hmm. with that sort of structure. It's not also not very sellable either. Yeah, you can't exactly sell yourself, right? Like, no. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. yeah, it doesn't allow you to invest with other people or take 
run a business with other people, and uh, it, it's quite quite limiting to situations where someone's essentially working on a on a consulting basis. Yeah. Um, we have partnerships, and that could be a partnership of individuals, partnership of trusts, partnership of companies, or a partnership of a mix of those things. And essentially, a partnership or partnership is is it's an association of people together with a common purpose, which is usually to carry on some sort of business. Now, historically, partnerships are a lot more common than they are now. One of the reasons that partnerships historically were were common was because of professional association rules. For example, lawyers had to run in partnerships, doctors had to run in partnerships, accountants had to run in partnerships. So um, they are not as common now as they were, but they still can be useful um, in certain situations. We then have companies, which are probably the primary um, or default setting, I would say, yeah. now. Um, a company has limited liability, which means that anything in general, what it does it, it is not attributed to anyone else, not to the shareholders, um, not to the directors, subject to certain things. Yep. Um, a lot of the rules are not designed around companies as well. Uh, and then the, the last category is trusts. Now, trusts is a very broad term. Um, there are various different kinds of trusts. The most common is a discretionary family trust, which is essentially uh, a, a vehicle that, that a family can control and, and, and benefit the, the family rather than a particular person. And there's various flexibility benefits behind, um, behind trusts. Now, historically, trusts uh, did carry on businesses a lot of the time, and there still is a lots of trusts that do carry on businesses. But I'd, I, I suppose as a general trend, we've moved for a lot of things away from partnerships and trusts and towards companies as the characters who carry on businesses. Okay. Um, this is a question I get a lot, and I've, I'm imagining a friend of mine who runs a business and it makes, let's say, a million dollars a year in revenue. Uh, and he, it's probably a little bit less than that, actually. And to my surprise, he was still acting as a sole trader. Like he really, like people have been telling him and I was, he's got a lot of assets and I was thinking, this doesn't seem right. And I think there are a lot of people out there maybe a lot earlier in their journey make that decision. Like I need to set this up quickly. Is it possible to transition away from say like a sole trader up to a company? Is that something that's a where you want to get that advice? Yeah, that's absolutely a point where you'd want to get advice for really at least two reasons. One is, well, that's a big change. Um, uh, what about, do you have employees? Do they have to get employed by a new entity? Do you have a lease? Do you have commercial contracts? All of those things need to essentially migrate to mm. that new entity. So from a commercial perspective, um, there is there is significant amount to be done. You can't sort of just click your fingers and change the structure as well. There's a certain amount of rigor and legal contracts that needed to be done. The the second issue is is tax. A lot of the time, um, uh, Australia's tax landscape is incredibly complicated. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of taxes, <laughs> um, and usually the impediment is transaction taxes. So. Uh, it, even though I may do a transaction with myself, essentially, the, the revenue looks at that as, as a taxing point, potentially. So if I started a business from scratch and I'm a sole trader and I want to move that into a, a company, let's say, and I've, I've got assets that have appreciated. Now, that, that, that might be 
real assets, but it could be intangible assets as well. For example, the goodwill of a business. Mm. So unless there's rules that deal with that that change and essentially allowing someone to to roll over those sort of things, then it can be quite prohibitive. And the good news is that there are there are concessions available to allow people to transition from one structure to another. Now, unfortunately, those rules aren't simple. Uh, there's a lot of complexities, uh, and it depends where you're going from, where you're going to, um, and the particular ins and outs of of your case. But that's that's stuff that we advise on um, regularly. Mm. I can imagine there are a lot of people that are probably relieved to hear that because they're thinking, well, maybe this is me. Like maybe I need to consider a different structure. Yeah. Um, it, what are some of the things maybe that they should consider if they are deciding on, let's say maybe. Like the, the, let's say they're going from that stage where they've got an established business, they're making money, they're thinking, they're thinking about employing people, they are employing people, but mm. they want to go into a company or a trust or something like that. Yeah. How do they make that distinction? Yeah, well, I'll give you, I'll give you some examples. So, for example, you may be carrying on a business through a discretionary trust. Mm-hmm. So, discretionary trust has a trustee. That trustee is often a company, so it's a company as trustee of the trust. Now. That can be a great structure. It's it's relatively easy to set up. Um, the trustee has complete flexibility with what to do about income, so it can appoint income to whichever people or, or their associates. So you can have sort of a quite a good um, uh, income tax um, rate. Mm-hmm. But a business could outgrow that that particular structure. And, and I can give you two examples. Firstly, um, a, ta- a trust doesn't pay tax um, in its own right. For example, a company does. Mm-hmm. So what a trust needs to do is it needs to choose who's going to pay tax on the income generated by the trust. And that might be individuals. Mm-hmm. If it's individuals, they could be paying up to 47%. Uh, or if if we want to use a corporate tax rate, which the corporate tax rate is either 25 or 30%, we need to essentially send that money to somewhere else. Uh, due to changes the tax office uh, uh, released about 10 years ago, it's made it a lot harder to for essentially a trading trust to be able to retain profits and cap tax at twenty five or thirty percent. Okay. In contrast, if you're a company, well, you, you operate your business, you you can make money, um, you pay tax at the corporate rate, and then you decide what to do with the money. You don't have to do anything with it. You could just sit in the company. You could reinvest in the business. You don't have to pay a dividend. Um, so it's a, quite a fundamental difference between those two. So often. When businesses are starting to require more retained profits and working capital, then that might be a situation where a trust might right. want to move to a company. Another example is a family trust really can only be owned by one person or one family, to be more correct. Do you want to get someone else in, a business partner, employees with equity? Well, you can't do that in that, t- in that structure. So that would require a change. Mm. So that's interesting. Yeah, the way you frame that, that particularly that first point is you could be the business could be generating a hundred thousand dollars of profit and or, or what have you, or income. That's got to pass through to someone through the trust. Whereas if and then so that's got to go and be taxed at the individual. Or you could have a company where it captures it and it keeps it in there. So that could have numerous benefits there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah. It, it gets incredibly complicated with trusts for that reason, because they are transparently taxed. You've sort of got to work out, okay, mm. and, and there's a lot of work that that um, well, 
accountants, lawyers, business owners have to do each year in managing those those those, those that tax position as well. And this is an area where it's 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 really complex. Um, the ATO is coming out with sort of new interpretations and developments every couple of years, and mm. um, uh, it, it's really hard. So so for, that's been one driver away from trust as the business operating entity. Now that's different to the business owning entity because a very common structure um, now is is a company with uh, the shareholders being discretionary family trust. That's that's what mine is. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what we see as the most the most common structure these days. Okay, so that and that costs of so from my experience that costs a couple of thousand dollars or a few thousand dollars to set up, and there is that ongoing administration. Yeah, but it definitely in my, in my experience it seems to scale well, meaning that it tends to handle a lot of the future alternative destinations, if you like, pretty well. Yeah, it, it does. It handles pretty, things pretty well. Um, you've got the company there for limited liability. So directors and shareholders are generally not liable other than in certain situations. So you've, you've got that. You've got the corporate tax rate. And then in terms of the company declaring dividends, well, the, the trustee of the trust can choose who it wishes that benefit to pass to. And you've got flexibility from a tax perspective. And also if there's some risk of that the controller essentially being sued for some other endeavor then there's some protection for for the assets because those assets are not owned by by that particular person mm. uh, it might change in the future if let's say with that structure um, business goes well and you decide look I've, I've got actually multiple different operations and I'd like to essentially ring fence those and and you might say well I need a I need a holding company and I've going to have three different business activities through subsidiary one two and three and that might be a reason why you, you come to um, uh, me uh, and say look I want to I want to do this restructure I want to want to want to move for these reasons for example yeah yeah I like that that may be me in the future to be honest <laughs> with you um, how about there's another thing before we get to exits of business businesses the, the probably the most common thing that I hear a lot is how do I protect my family's assets or my personal assets or my partners, my wife's, my husband's, whoever, mm. um, from the business activities. Mm, yeah. Yep. No. That's it's a it's a huge topic. And and on the protection, there's there's generally three things that people are trying to protect against in general. Yeah. Um, one is business risk. Um, which is the first category, which I'll come back to. The second is um, family law protection. So um, my child might be getting into a relationship and I want to pass some wealth and you know I want that protected and things of that nature. And the third is um, uh, challenging an estate. So when someone passes away and what uh, amount someone should be entitled to as a result of that. So mm-hmm. On the first topic, and they're all different, and the law on each of these is different in how it's treated. On the first topic, um, it's generally so. Although a company has limited liability, the directors can be personally liable for certain things, and in general, this has been expanding over time, mm. um, somewhat for policy reasons. Um, so, a, a director can be personally liable if a company is trading insolvent for the for the for the debts of the company. Directors can be personally liable for unpaid superannuation, unpaid POIG, um, and more recently, unpaid GST as well. And unpaid GST is a big one because GST is a huge 
huge amount that can be coming in and out of, of, of a business. And the premise of all of these is, well, look, those those amounts really are not the business's money. It's it's the employee's superannuation. It's the employee's the tax paid on behalf of the employees, or it's the it's the it's the government's money in the mm. case of the GST. So, um, although a company has limited liability, the directors still can be personally liable. So, the generally accepted way of doing things is to ensure that those at-risk persons don't have. Um, assets in their in their name that can be subject to attack if the the worst happens, and of course you you hope and do everything mm. in your power to ensure the worst doesn't happen. Um, so, for example, a, a common situation might be you've got um, uh, spouses. One is in business and mm-hmm. is a director of company, um, and the decision is made to have all wealth in the other spouse's name. And so long as that's done correctly, then even if that worst event happened to the the spouse that's at risk, then those creditors could not um, have access or recourse to the assets of the the safe spouse in that example. So that would be this is something that I thought about with my partner um, with our house, mm. our home. Uh, I wanted that separate from our business because I'm in finance. You can get sued the things that can go wrong yeah yeah and so i made a conscious effort to separate that out yeah and there's a really really interesting case that's just gone all the way through the high court called bosnac um and i'll just touch on this is quite briefly Mm. it was a hat so it was a business owner um and there was a property and the property was in the name of the spouse Mm -hmm. so all, all good so far this business owner things went very bad with the ato and they owed the ato a lot of money the ATO said, well, I don't care that that property is in the name of the spouse. Um, really, you own half the property. Mm. And they pursued that argument all the way to the high court, um, trying to get an order essentially against half of that property. Hmm. Now, they ultimately lost that case, but it shows you that you've got to get everything right um, as well and, and make sure it, it might sound simple, but just doing documentation to, to ensure that in that example of, well, having the family home in, in spouse's name, is there evidence? Have you done the right documents? For example, it might be making it very clear in a legal form that there is an intention to make a gift to that other party. This is not a loan. This is not some sort of trust arrangement, but this is intentionally being right. done. So it's really important to do those things, to do those things right. Mm, now you've made me question uh, everything. So <laughs> <laughs> that's my job. That's my job. <laughs> yeah, right. I like it. No, that's great. And I think a lot of people listening to this would say the same thing. Um, so, mate, I'm hoping we can talk about once you've got an established business selling. Um, and there are two questions here. There's the the business side that I'm hoping to pick your brain on, but also the technical side. We've spoken a lot about already on this show about selling businesses and I'm an investor. That's what I do for a job. And I'm looking to buy businesses from people who are willing to sell. When it comes to a business owner selling, what are some of the things in your experience in dealing with them that they tend to do, like where they go well, what are the things, what are the steps that they can put in place and what steps do they put in place to make sure the sale goes well? Yeah, yeah. Well, some of these things will be will probably be not n- not news to you, um, but I tend to see that the bigger sales are situations where there's not a key person 
dependency or there's a limited key person dependency. I see plenty of businesses that are profitable businesses in that one to $10 million revenue. You know, they're making good profits, but they don't have any sort of um, succession or the, the person running it and, and controlling it is 65 or 70. And uh, you know, if you're coming in thinking about buying something like that, well, okay, um, what's it going to look like without that that key person and and mm. those type of situations, I, I would would have thought that there, there's either a low desire or uh, the dollars are going to significantly be reduced for those type of businesses where it, it really is dependent on on one person or a small group of people. And if they go, then then there's not going to be as much of a sellable business there. Mm. I also see other things from a from a legal sort of due diligence perspective. The, the amount of times. Um, you have a business owner, they're approached for sale and uh, they don't have employment contracts for their employees, for example. Uh, they don't have a written lease over their property um, mm. is, is amazing. So <laughs> making sure those, those proper legal documents are in place for um, key relationships, supply contracts, um, employment contracts, leases is, is really important as well. Mm. Because... I think if you're listening to this and you're thinking of selling your business, you've got to get it in a shape that the next person wants, yep. right? So yeah. that's that's so important. How about then in terms of the tax consequences? From a financial planning side, I know there are certain rules with superannuation, for example, uh, that a lot of people wouldn't know about and if they only knew, right? Yeah. Um, what are some of the consequences uh, of selling a business and what should people, like some of the things that people should be aware of? Yeah, yeah, well... A lot of this is going to depend on what structure you're in mm -hmm. and what is the appetite of the buyer. Um, and it is a bit of a two-way dance because what might be good for you might not be good for the buyer, both from a tax perspective and also from a risk perspective as well. Let's take the example of uh, running a business through a company and the company is owned by a trust. It's, it's, it's all sort of one person controlling, controlling mm -hmm. everything. Now, there's really two ways that, that that sale could happen. The first is the company could could sell its business. Mm -hmm. and by selling its business, it's selling its trading stock, its plant and equipment, its goodwill, its IP, and anything else that that of assets that it owns in relation to the business. That's all we call a business sale. Mm -hmm. um, from the purchaser's perspective, they're acquiring title to assets. They're not acquiring a structure. The other alternative is what's called share sale. Trust sells the shares in the company um, and the purchaser buys its shares in the company. And essentially in that situation, they are taking on this, this skeleton potentially. So they take the, as, as the owner, they can be liable for anything that's happened in that company or the company can be liable for it, I should say. Um, so th those are really the two, the two main ones. And in general, a purchaser will want to buy assets and a vendor will want to sell shares. Mm. And the reason for that is for a seller, well, if we're doing a business sale, the company will sell the business and you'll work out if you've made a profit from that, which we should call capital gain. Mm -hmm. um, and then the company will pay tax firstly on that, generally at either 25 or 30%. But then you'll have to get the money out of the company and you have to have another layer of tax on the way out. As an alternative, if the shares are sold by the trust, well, it's the trust that makes the profit. 
because it's a trust, it can apply what's called the general 50% CGT discount. So essentially, you, you halve your gain already. Um, and there isn't this two-layer uh, tax issue. It's essentially a much cleaner exit mm. for, 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 the, for the trust and the owner of the trust. Mm. So um, the first question is, is it what is, what's the sale going to look like? And in general, um, for a seller, it's going to be better to be a share sale. You might have a complicated structure or you might have a messy structure where you want to sell the shares, but the company has three different things it does in it and you want to keep one of those things. There could be a property in the, in the company that you want to keep, mm. or there could be a large amount of retained earnings and profits in that company that essentially you want to extract before a sale. So it might be the case that there's a number of uh, pre-transaction steps that might need to be done um, and preferably not the day before a sale <laughs> um, uh, so that you can sell in the way you want to sell. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, I hadn't obviously thought about this too much, but in my example, that would be my family trust owning shares in our company, the RAS Group. Uh, we could sell all the assets, the websites, the goodwill, everything to go with it. Someone could buy that or they. I could just sell my shares that are held at the trust level and they transfer across. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Is that typically... In, when when you're dealing with business owners that are looking to sell, is that the is that are those the typical clients that you have? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So so that's the first that's the first choice. Um, and and then you've got this uh, wonderful uh, regime of tax concessions called the small business CGT concessions, which depending on the situation can p- potentially eliminate tax or drastically reduce tax. Wow. So okay. Um, I've had situations where businesses worth $10 million have had practically no tax as a result of small business concessions applying. And um, wow. it, could, it could really be the difference between, a lot of times it's the difference between selling and not selling because uh, if, you're, if you're selling a business, you're less concerned with the amount of money that is on the contract and mm-hmm. you're much more concerned about well what's the after tax amount of money from this so mm. if it's a difference in one or two million dollars tax between one and the other or or or, or there's no tax then that, that's that could be a game changer in terms of decision to sell for sure it is i often think about that right like mm. we're fortunate that people like our business and they often approach me and they have indicative interest you could say then I work backwards from the numbers. I'm like, even if I sell it this, then I've got to pay that, and then I've got to pay, and then the shareholders get this, and I'm like, I'm not left with that much money. Mm. You know, it might sound like a lot. Yeah. Like I hear about all these people that run businesses selling. I'm like, oh. but then if you can do it and you can take advantage of those, yeah. Are, are those typically speaking those concessions? Are those typically like businesses with trading stock? They the, so typically the concessions will apply to a sale of shares. Or a sale of another appreciating asset, so goodwill and business property. It's really three categories: property that's that's being used in a business that's related to the owner, mm-hmm. goodwill, uh, and by goodwill I'm including IP in that as well. Yep. And shares. So if you're selling trading stock or uh, you know plant and equipment, it's not going to apply to things like that. So it's really those three categories, and then exactly how it applies is really going to depend on who's selling and how much for and ages of the people involved and what they want to do with the money. There's basically a smorgasbord of sort of options available. And it's for something that applies to so many businesses and small businesses and can be the 
a huge difference between whether people sell or mm. or don't. It's incredibly complicated, yeah. um, and it's all or nothing as well. So I'll, to give you an example, one of the conditions is that the net assets of the the seller needs to be six million dollars or less. Now, this was introduced in around two thousand eight, and it was five million at the time, uh, and then they decided to index it with inflation and around 2010 or 11 to 6 million. Hmm. Now, it hasn't changed since and there's no <laughs> no inflation skyrocketing. There's no plans to change it si- um, uh, uh, since then. Mm-hmm. But but if you sell for 6.01, you will get nothing. It's not it's not a pro rata, it's right. a cliff that you fall off. So if you sell for 5.9 if you have 5.99 versus 6.01, you will end up with a lot more after tax on the 5.99 than you will on the 6.01, which those things don't generally don't make sense from a policy perspective. Generally, if when you design laws, particularly tax laws, you don't want to create these artificial situations where people sort of are making worse financial choices from a gross perspective because they know that there's these there's these cliffs so yeah. um, that's just an example of, of how these things could be all or nothing and and if you if you if you slightly stuff one part up you get you get nothing when you say six million dollars was it the person's is it, is it the person selling it's the person selling and the the related entities of that person. So, okay, so it's kind of like a holistic thing. Like you can't yeah. be having money off to the side here, which no. But even on something like that, it is incredibly complicated. Whether your spouse has to be included, um, does yeah. your parents' trust have to be included? Um, is a side business that you have an interest in included? Is it a hundred percent of that business? Is it just the shares owned by that person? Mm. And there's there's a lot of different permutations. So even getting that right. Is isn't this is is not simple or can't may not be simple depending on the situation. That's a good rule of thumb though. So if you're listening to this and you are in that bracket, um, so that's yeah, that's see that's worth that's worth its weight in gold or maybe more. So yeah, mate, I've got two more. I guess uh, two more questions. One is just um, if people wanted to reach out to you, how would they get in touch with you and the team? Yeah, best way to get in touch is is via our website or or via Google. Um, it's Velocity Legal. And the website is velocitylegal.com.au. Mm-hmm. Um, all the team's details and the various areas that we do and, and practice in and also our insights uh, on the website. Yep. Uh, we have a newsletter as well, so you can subscribe for that um, uh, and see sort of the, the, the thought um, and opinions that we're, we're publishing as well. Yeah, great. I'll put all links to those in the show notes. Um, you said Sydney, uh, you set up the Sydney office. You're obviously here in Melbourne talking with me. Uh, do you deal with customers or clients who might be all around Australia? Yeah, we do. So, so Australia is a federation, which was very much brought out by COVID um, <laughs> and the demarcation between state laws and federal laws. So tax is something that's federal. Um, so dealing with the ATO, the laws are the same everywhere. Okay. Um, on state matters, sometimes they're the same, sometimes they're drastic drastically different between states, yep. um, not to single one state out, but Western Australia, for example, <laughs> things can be very different. We practice primarily in Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. Yeah. Okay, great. Yep. Um, the the question that I wanted to end with is, because you deal with so many businesses, is there something that you think separates great business owners from the rest? So like something that if you had like one or two things even that you think 
this I've seen has worked. It's a personality trait. It's a business trait. Whatever they do that makes them have a better chance of success. Yeah, that's really difficult. Um, I, I think the ones that, that, that do it better are the ones that they're sort of thinking more about the future rather than the right now. I'd, mm -hmm. I'd sort of say if I had to sum it, sum it up, um, the, the ones that don't do it as well are those, those ones where they're 65, 70, and they have no succession plan. And the reason they don't have a succession plan is because they haven't taken steps that they needed to take a long time ago to, to start doing that. They've, they've, they've said, look, you know, uh, uh, the employees don't aren't interested the employees and they sort of have a sort of an us versus them type mentality um mm. and 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 because they have that mentality it it doesn't allow those opportunities to arise because if you sort of closed off to something then how is it ever going to how is it ever going to going to um uh, improve mm. um whereas the ones that are a bit more open minded with that they do have they're able to spread things around a bit more they're how able to have a bit less dependency on one person and then people will thrive as well and you'll be able to retain and attract people for a lot longer the more that you um sort of give them room to grow i'd say mm. um so that would be my yeah that's that's my takeaway yeah i like that i think that's really i did not expect you to say that because it's quite it makes so much sense and i struggle with this too to be honest obviously it's a bit of key person risk in our business but having I guess that longer term mindset of, you know, this might not happen in a week and I have to be patient, but maybe it happens over three or four or five years. I think that's what, now that you mentioned it, that's something that I do see. Yeah. And just know. as an example, I've seen with, with, uh, with lawyers, we have, we have uh, professional development responsibilities each year and we have to go out and do certain things mm. to, 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 to make sure we can continue to practice as lawyers. Now, some people will do the bare minimum. Um, some firms will make lawyers pay for that themselves. So the right. lawyer will be on a salary and, and they'll have to go out and dip into their own pocket to, to pay for those things. Um, with, with our business, we say to everyone, look, here's a budget for each person. You choose anything that you think is going to benefit you uh, as a lawyer and you go do it. And you, we don't need to approve it. You don't need to tell us what it is. Um, we trust you and you work out what you think is going to make you a a better lawyer in the long term. Hmm. So that's an example, I think, of where you give people that sort of trust and confidence and a long-term view and, and it can really... Yeah, uh, let them figure it out. Yeah. And they'll yeah, be empowered for that. Well, Andrew, I really appreciate you taking some time to, to join me. I know this is... Um, you've actually done an incredible job of breaking down, like you said, tax is very complicated and we all know the, the pitfalls of trying to understand the law in some instances, particularly for businesses. So you've done an incredible job of distilling that all down for us in 40 minutes, no less. So, mate, that's, <laughs> Thank a, you. that's a great job. So, uh, Velocity Legal, there'll be links in the show notes if you want to get in touch with a lawyer and see what the team specialise in. I really appreciate you taking the time to come in. No worries. Thanks very much, Owen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Business Podcast. I think this series is best served with my free business course on RASC Education. My free course includes all of my notes, templates, employment guides, legal documents, marketing strategies, software recommendation, and ideas for starting and running a small business. If you're a small business owner or an expert like an accountant, lawyer, investor, or entrepreneur, I want to hear from you. I'm not 100% sure what we're going to do with this podcast series, so I'm looking for sponsors as well as potential co-hosts, and of course, I'm eager to invest in businesses run by talented people. If you're looking for a supporter or advisor, a silent partner, or even an investor to support your growth, 
I can help. Please contact me via the Rask website. Finally, if this podcast or the course helps you, I only ask that you please help me by sharing it with one friend, colleague, or family member who runs a business. Thanks for listening.